Welcome. 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 You're listening to Built by Us. Built by Us. Built by Us. Built by Us. Hello, Built by Us listeners. Before we begin, we like to preface all of our episodes by sharing that our conversations take place with individuals of different lived experiences and at varying stages in their journey of learning and unlearning. Because of this, our conversations can be sensitive and triggering. Here at Built by Us, we want to remind listeners that we will always strive to create brave spaces where productive dialogue is present, all voices are heard and acknowledged, and learning can take place for each guest, listener, and host. Conversations and thoughts from our episodes are not officially representative of the views of Democracy North Carolina. We hope that you enjoy the episode. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Built by Us. It's Taylor and Emily here. And we are super excited to be joined with our Eastern friend turns, Lucas Sejo and Chantel Gillis. They are here to talk with us about student organizing and what it means to be, you know, someone who is part of the younger generation who's doing the most important work out here. So um, Chantel and Lucas, uh, I'd love for y'all to tell us a little bit more about y'all and the work you've been doing out east this summer. Um, so take it away. Hello everyone, my name is Chantel Gillis and I am from Weldon, North Carolina and I am a rising sophomore at UNC Chapel Hill where I am studying English and political science and I got the great opportunity to be an Eastern intern this year during at Democracy Summer and we have been doing awesome work with social media marketing, talking with community leaders, representatives and senators across North Carolina and doing awesome advocacy work to create better communities around North Carolina. And I'll pass it off to Lucas. Thanks, Chantel. Uh, yeah, my name is Lucas Sejo. I'm from Newburgh, North Carolina. Um, and I currently attend North Carolina State University where I am a rising senior double majoring in agricultural science and political science. Um, and Chantel said it best, we, we worked this past summer with Marquez Thompson, our amazing regional managing organizer in East North Carolina, doing a lot of work around voter registration and making sure that people know what their rights are and how to use them. So thank you, Chantel. And today we are joined by three amazing uh, young students who are our guests on our podcast. And I will pass it back over to Chantel to begin our introductions. The first person on our amazing panel of guests is Julia Clark. Julia is originally from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, but currently lives in Washington, DC. As a junior at UNC Chapel Hill, Clark is a double major in political science and African and African-American diaspora studies. As a committed advocate for racial equity and civil rights, Julia serves as vice president of the Black Student Movement, the largest cultural organization at UNC's campus and is a prominent Black Lives Matter organizer. Clark is leading movements of racial reckoning at predominantly white institutions and dedicated to leaving a more equitable society for future generations. So thank you for being here today, Julia. Thank you for having me. Next up, we have Chris Suggs. Uh, Chris is a champion for youth empowerment, civic engagement, and transformative change. At 14 years old, he founded Kinston Teens, a nonprofit that empowers young people through civic engagement and community development in his hometown. Since 2016, Chris has served as the youngest commissioner on the North Carolina Governor's Crime Commission, where he has made great strides in protecting the youth in North Carolina when it comes to how they are protected under the law. Chris is an experienced youth and community organizer on the grassroots level and has worked to center the voices of young people in marginalized groups on the national level with companies such as Facebook, BET, Nickelodeon, CNN, Teen Vogue, Mag or sorry, Teen Vogue Magazine, and others. Chris holds degrees in political science and religious studies from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, where he served as president of the Black Student Movement and senior class president of the class of 2021. 
Along with all this, Chris has also testified before Congress on our nation's climate crisis and continually works to better his community of Kinston, North Carolina, as well as the state as a whole. Thanks for being here today, Chris. Thank y'all so much for having me. Last but certainly not least is Greer Webb. Greer Webb is a warrior for justice who cares deeply about bridging North Carolina's racial divide and elevating the power of America's youth. A native of Raleigh, North Carolina, Greer is currently a junior Moorhead King Scholar at UNC Chapel Hill, where he double majors in political science and African, African-America diaspora studies. He also minors in social and economic justice, viewing these studies as a way to expand his knowledge base as he grows as an advocate for equity and truth. Greer is the co-founder of the NC Town Hall and Young America's Protest, two youth-driven nonprofits, and is the immediate past co-chair of UNC Chapel Hill's Black Student Movement Political Action Committee. Greer was selected as a 2020 Youth Voter Ambassador through Harvard University's Graduate School of Education and currently serves on the City of Raleigh's Police Advisory Board, as well as on NC Governor Roy Cooper's Statewide Crime Commission. In 2021, he was honored as the first ever recipient of the Triangle MLK Committee's John Lewis Student Activist Award. Most recently, he completed a summer internship at the United States Black Chambers Incorporated in Washington, D.C., where he served as the youngest intern in the organization's history. Greer focuses on issues like increasing the representation of student voices in the education space, gun violence prevention, and police accountability legislation, as he constantly works to listen to diverse perspectives in hopes of fostering tangible and sustainable solutions. In the future, Greer has his sights set on law school and beginning a career that centers around defending marginalized people and working to grow communities, opportunities of happiness and success. Thank you for being here today, Greer, and welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be with all of y'all today. Yes, and we are truly excited to be speaking with all of you. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind when you know we hear this list of accomplishments from you all is, do you all have social lives? Do you do other things? Um, because it is just list after list of amazing work. And, you know, I feel a little bit bad being the same age and, you know, but just really kudos to you all and the drive that you have to do this work. Um, so yeah, we've, you know, introduced you all um, as youth advocates and who have been doing this work for a while now. And so that's kind of the introduction to our topic. As today, we're going to be talking about the current state of youth activism in North Carolina. Um, and we'll be doing so through our conversation with you three, um, who are, you know, students or recently graduated students who have been doing advocacy and activism work within the local communities. Um, and I just wanna begin by putting our conversation into a historical perspective. Um, but before I start, I wanna encourage you all to speak out and offer your input and feelings if you feel called to do so as I do this. Um, and if you don't, that is totally fine as well. I just wanna offer this space to, to have it if you want it. So this year marked 61 years since Joseph McNeil, Franklin McCain, David Richmond, and Jabril Kazan began their sit-in at the lunch counter of the F.W. Woolworth store in Greensboro, North Carolina. The freshmen at North Carolina A&T would come to be known as the Greensboro Four, and their active peaceful protests would inspire similar acts across the state and nation. The inspiration that flowed from these acts of defiance in the name of equality for all would come to reach Ella Baker. Baker was a seasoned vet of the civil rights movement who had helped to establish the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And she had also been raised and educated in North Carolina as she attended a college at Shaw University. 2021 commemorates 61 years since Baker returned to Shaw University, where she invited all of the students who had participated in this to join her. It was here in downtown Raleigh where the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was established. May of this year marked one year since the murder of George Floyd and the beginning of peaceful protests across the nation and across cities in North Carolina. Protests that called for accountability and equal protection and that were led and coordinated by America's youth. 
including the three that we have with us today. In a couple of months now, there will have been one year since the 2020 election, an election that students across North Carolina organized around and preparing citizens to vote in order to ensure the survival of our democracy. The students organizing in this fashion were looking to make sure that everyone's voices were heard and the students we're speaking with today were part of this group. What we have with us today is the next generation of good troublemakers and earth shakers, and we could not be more excited to speak with you all. Um, so just again, thank you all for being here. Um, and I guess if there's nothing to be said, we can go ahead and begin. Okay, so our first question is that all three of you are fully involved in organizing and advocacy in different ways and in some different areas. I just want to begin our conversation by asking you all how you got activated in the first place. Chris, let's start with you. Okay, perfect. Um, and that's a, a really great question. So I would say my activism, my involvement in my community, it really just came naturally. And I always attribute it to my family. So um, growing up, my mom was an elementary school educator. So she always had me, you know, volunteering in her classroom at some type of school event or going to a school board meeting. And my dad worked for our local government in the Parks and Recreation Department. So with him, I was always volunteering at some community event or at a Parks and Recreation game. So I got to see the inner workings and the outer workings of, of local government. Um, at the same time, I had an aunt, my aunt Tammy, she's known as our, our neighborhood rabble rouser. You know, something's going on in Kent, she's at the city council meetings complaining and making sure folks know about it. So I was six, seven years old going to city council meetings with my aunt or at school board meetings with my mom. And, you know, growing up in this environment and seeing all the issues and how change actually did happen in my community um, just inspired me to naturally get involved. So um, I, I really attribute my involvement to my parents and my family and the way that they instill those values in me at a very young age. That's awesome. Um, and I especially, you know, when I think about reflect upon like the reason why this work is so important to me, it comes back to similar um, similar drives as you, you know, just like family values and what implemented us like from a young age going forward, um, you know, especially the education component. Um, I have come from a family of, you know, educators. Um, and so that's very important, you know, and you learn a lot about inequalities through looking at the work done in that area as well. Um, Gray or Julia, what about you all? Yeah, sure. Um, I think that my story in some ways is, is similar to Chris's, but for me, the, the really moment where I realized the power that young people did have um, came after the Parkland school shooting in 2018. Um, and I know I start to tell people that now and they actually have trouble remembering which school shooting that was, which just goes to show, you know, how sad and important that issue um, of gun violence is in our communities. But I was in high school and I just um, worked with some of my peers to put on the North Carolina Town Hall, which you all mentioned in the intro. And from there, just launched into um, other areas like environmental justice, areas of youth empowerment and engagement, and then racial equity more broadly. And then arriving at UNC and getting involved with the Black student movement and just understanding that racially marginalized people in particular have always been on the front lines of history. I mean, you mentioned SNCC and Ella Baker, um, John Lewis founded there at mm -hmm. Shaw University in my hometown. And so I say often that young people have always been on the front lines of history and the change movements that occur in our country. And so for me, um, that family aspect came in the form of my grandmother, who was a 25 year English teacher in Wake County Public Schools. She grew up in Albany, Georgia, I'm almost in Alabama at the height of segregation and just understand how she um, overcame obstacles and barriers to become a successful teacher um, as a black woman here in North Carolina and instilled in me that good troublemaking ability, the um, really courage to stand up and use my voice for positive change. I've always loved people defending them, sticking up for them and just talking with them and learning their stories. And so 
I've just, uh, since that Parkland School shooting, really taken off and tried to really lift the voice of my peers and make sure that young people were in the conversations about the future of our uh, city, our state, and our nation. That's fantastic. Julia, please. Yeah, I think similar to my fellow panelists, um, advocacy and activism is something that's multi-generational for my family as well. My grandfather was a prominent civil rights activist during the 60s and 70s and was actually a leader in the Attica prison riot. So it's a very different type of activism that we see. And then once again, my father, who also attended UNC, was a student activist during anti-apartheid protests. And so I always say that advocacy and activism is something that is multi-generational and is something that I inherited, in fact, because for me, I can't pinpoint a specific time where I began to become an activist or an advocate because I've always had to as a form of survival. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of Black youth and Black children um, necessarily don't choose to do, but it's something that we have to do because we realize in a world that does not create space for us, we must create space for ourselves and continue to better this world for future generations. I think for me, the main point, the main turning point, excuse me, for my life was realizing the power that I held with my voice and my anger specifically. I think a lot of times we tell Black women, especially, that anger is something we should shy away from, that passion is something we should shy away from, when really I think there's nothing more powerful than a Black woman's passion or a Black woman's anger. And so for me, once I realized the power that I held within my own voice and the power that I held within my own family and the generational activism that was present in my life, that was really when I started to speak up and use the, the influence that I had. And so beginning in high school, my high school, which was in Falls Church, Virginia, was named after Confederate General Jeb Stewart. And so I knew going into high school that I was uncomfortable, but I was scared to speak up. And so at 15, I founded an organization called Students for Change at my high school, and it took almost three years, but we were able to change the name of my high school from Jeb Stewart High School to Justice High School, and I was the first graduating class from Justice. And so that was kind of my first taste of enacting institutional change, because I knew that that name made me uncomfortable, and so I didn't want to subject any, any other person of color, any other Black girl that were were to go to that school to the same discomfort that I felt. So really, I think that activism and advocacy has always been a part of my life and has been something that I have inherited from my family, but it's also been um, a struggle at times. And it's not something that I want my own children or grandchildren to have to do for their survival. And so realizing my own power and my own influence in my voice was a real turning point for me and kind of got me started in being the, the, the outspoken and strong, not in a tokenizing way, but the outspoken and strong Black woman that I am now. Yeah, I mean, if I could just piggyback off that, I think Julia makes a couple of important points specifically for this conversation. And that's one, that activism is, is very inherent in the Black community. Um, it's something that's natural for us because we have to not only live and figure out how to survive, but we're also um, tasked with making sure that our children and our grandchildren and those in our community don't have to face the same struggles that we have um, and that our forefathers and mothers have. And so I think it's important also when we talk about activism being uh, multi-generational, that it's also very intersectional. 
Um, and so I just remember last year, I think the three of us were all at the Raleigh protests, just standing in solidarity with Minneapolis and the cities across America, protesting police brutality and injustice. And so to understand that we have that community, um, specifically as Black people in North Carolina and in the United States, where we're able to, to support one another, you know, people often ask me, like, how does one become active? And I think that anyone really can become active in their community by speaking up. Um, and so there doesn't necessarily have to be a defining moment, but I do think that there's a light bulb that goes off and you either have the choice to ignore what's going on around you or to jump in um, and be bold and courageous. And that's just something that I admire so much about both Julia and Chris, but also wanted to note that um, that support specifically within America's marginalized communities where we can just show up at one another's protest and not worry about um, who's leading it or um, what organization is involved or in charge that we know that we're supporting each other as, as fellow humans, I think is critical as we continue to think about what the future looks like um, in a future that's that's led by America's youth. Yeah, that's um, those, are, those are all really great points, Greer and Julia, thank you for that. Um, you know, I just, I really, the point about how anyone could be active in your community. It's just about getting out there and doing the work. Um, and I think that's really like an important takeaway, you know, as we're gonna build on this conversation about how you can get into this. Um, it's just like trying to find a, a pinpoint to get in there. Um, and all three of you have, I think that's important thing to point out, like all three of you found your pinpoints in your community, you know, that, that spark, that, that lit that spark that then drove you to do this work. Um, and so I think it's really important to just pause and point that out, but that's really, you know, how this begins, how you begin doing this activism organizing work is you find that pinpoint that sparks that, that courage in you to go and, and call that inequality and you work towards it. Um, and I also, you know, just Julia, um, you know, I really, really appreciate you uh, personally. Um, you have been using your voice and you have been using your body this past summer um, for wonderful active change, um, specifically on Chapel Hill's campus. And the work that you've been doing with the Black Student Movement when, on the tenure case there for um, Nicole Hannah-Jones. So I kind of just want to pivot a little bit to there. You talk about building equitable spaces and you talk about building spaces where you can use your voice. So I wanted to ask about the Black Student Movement specifically at Chapel Hill. Um, it's the largest um, cultural organization on Chapel Hill's campus. You all three have, been partici have participated in different capacities. Um, Chris, you were the president a couple of years ago. Julie, you're the current vice president. And Greg, you've, you've co-chaired a couple of, um, you know, groups on, in, on it as well. So can we talk about that for a minute, um, what the Black Student Movement is and what it's given you as a Chapel Hill student? Yeah, so I can go ahead and start. Um, but of course, I've worked with both Greer and Chris, so feel free to jump in as well. So the Black Student Movement, like you said, Lucas, is the largest cultural organization on our campus. And we are committed to um, Uhuru Ni Upenduzi, which means freedom through revolution. And so that is the basis of our organization. We are advocating not only for the freedom of Black students, but also a revolutionization of our university in itself. We recognize that the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill has been founded on and is rooted upon white supremacy and racism. And so that's exactly what we're dealing with every single day since our founding. And so Black student movement has always been not only a safe space for Black students on campus, but it's also been the forefront of activism on our campus. Black activist tradition at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill is extremely strong and is extremely historical as well, where this is not something that has only just happened in the past few years, but Black student movement has always been at the forefront of activism on our campus, specifically with the Nicole Hannah-Jones case. Um, a lot of people ask, you know, 
why did you guys decide that this was something we need to stand up for? And really it wasn't a decision, a decision. it was a necessity. Um, this is merely one example of systemic disrespect and systemic dehumanization of black students on our campus. And so of course we had to speak up because not only is it our job to, as the largest cultural organization and as a voice for black students, but also specifically as a black woman myself, I know that no one keeps us safe like we keep us safe. And so disrespect to a black woman anywhere is disrespect to every black woman everywhere. And so I knew that the Nicole Hannah-Jones case was something that the university, once again, would be able to sweep under the rug, would be able to not talk about, unless we were able to really hold their feet to the fire and apply pressure and make them accountable for what they've done. And so, of course, in the past few months, um, I think it's also important to recognize that, you know, Black women have been leading the demonstrations and the protests surrounding Nicole Hannah-Jones and also surrounding institutional inequity at our university. Black women like myself, like our president, Teddy Van. And so I think that Black women have always been the backbone of social movements in this country, of every single social movement. And it's something I re-emphasize over and over and over again, because this is a, a job and sometimes a burden that we have been given and that we uphold. And like I said before, the anger of Black women have moved mountains. And so once again, we were able to do that this year as well with Nicole Hannah-Jones, where we gained national attention and we actually got the Board of Trustees to reverse their decision. And thankfully, Nicole Hannah-Jones chose to go to Howard um, because we know that ultimately the biggest revolution and the biggest resistance against an oppressive system and a system of white supremacy is prioritizing yourself in a system that teaches Black women to sacrifice our well-being, to sacrifice our mental health, and to sacrifice our physical bodies. The most, I think, the most resistant act that you can commit to is prioritizing yourself in that system. And that's exactly what we wanted Nicole Hannah-Jones to do. Of course, awarding her, awarding her tenure was the bare minimum. The bare minimum. And so really, it was disrespectful that we had to ask for that or demand that in the first place. But really what we wanted was not only that she be awarded what she deserves, but at the same time that she be given the choice to either accept or deny the offer. And we are elated that she chose to go somewhere that she will be valued instead of staying with a university system that has little to no intention of changing and that has little to no intention of accommodating the Black talent, the Black excellence, and the Black students and faculty and staff that we have at this institution. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, and just thank you again for using your voice to, to voice that. Um, and, you know, I want to give Chris and Greer a chance to respond to this question as well, but I also just want to comment, you know, that it's a very, you know, response you gave is a very similar response that Lamar Richards, um, that's Chapel Hill student body president for our listeners, gave in his letter, open letter to faculty and, and students and staff at Chapel Hill following the decision. And so I just want to push a little bit back to you, Julia, and ask you, um, you know, do you think these systemic issues can be fixed? You know, do you think that there's, what, what do you think about that? How deep is the systemic issue at Chapel Hill? Yeah, and I think that is kind of related to the question of reform versus abolition is what it boils down to. Can the system of the University of North Carolina of Chapel Hill be reformed or is the basis or the foundation of the system rooted in so much white supremacy that we would have to revolutionize the entire thing? 
And for me personally, I am under the impression that white supremacy and racism run so deep in our university that if we were to go to the, the reform route, which is possible, we would have to reform so much they would end up being a, revolution, a revolutionization of the very system itself. And so I think that the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill in itself is a system and a university rooted in white supremacy. It is. The very grounds we walk on were built by enslaved African-Americans on land that was taken from indigenous people. And so at the very basis of the foundation of the very walls we walk through and the corridor, corridors that we live in and that we stay in, that we take classes in, the very basis of those structures and of those buildings is rooted in white supremacy. And ultimately, even with our administration, even with Kevin Guskowitz, who, you know, I can have my, uh, my qualms with him as well, but even if he were to be removed, another chancellor or another person in his position of power would continue to uphold the same oppressive systems and the same inequitable policies that this university has. So ultimately, I think the work that I do and the work that fellow students activists do on this campus is not to necessarily fix this university because I don't believe that this university can be fixed of all its problems. It's simply to alleviate the toll that these issues and these inequities take on our students of color and our communities of color surrounding the university as well. And so I think that to a certain point, it depends on what your end goal is. If your end goal is to completely repair and restore Chapel Hill and to repair and restore and remove these systems of oppression that we have, then what will need to happen is everything will need to be revolutionized. We're going to have to start from the beginning, start from our foundation, excuse me. However, if your goal is to simply alleviate and to make Black lives easier, to make Black lives better, then I think that is possible through policy change and through um, administration change as well. But I think ultimately, what we should look at is not the symptoms of the problem, but the disease itself. And the disease itself is white supremacy that has touched every single corner of this campus. There is not one stone unturned that does not hold white supremacy. And so ultimately we can either treat the disease itself or we can simply mitigate the symptoms. Thank you for that. Just, um, you know, especially just a lot of the press has been coming out around it, um, you know, just, I've, I've been amazed by the work that the Black student movement has been doing. I just want to point out, you know, that ultimately, you know, it's not it's not your job to fix the issue, you know, but it, you know, because that's a systemic issue that they have to fix. Um, but it's um, it's amazing what you all have been organizing around, and you know, the numbers you've been pulling out and the support you've been pulling out to, you know, to to call out these systemic issues. Um, and I just I I think it's phenomenal work, and I I do hope that it goes somewhere. And I do hope that, you know, the, this movement continues on. Um, and I think, you know, the Black student movement is gonna, it's an integral part of that. Um, and I wanna pass it back to Greer and Chris um, to our original question, you know, what have your experience with the Black student movement been like? Um, and then if you also wanna touch on the question of systemic inequalities at Chapel Hill um, and the work that could be done there, please feel free to, please, please feel free to do so as well. Yeah, I can jump in briefly and then toss it over to Chris. I mean, Julia hit it on the head there. I, I think it always boils down to willingness. Do people in positions of power have the will to lead, um, lead from a place of compassion and understanding um, and, and really love for fellow, for fellow humans? I mean, 
at UNC, I think, again, the Black student movement, I'm so proud of them, of us, um, and of the change that we continue to, to push for and advocate for. But the three of us on this call were also on multiple calls last summer in the midst of racial unrest, in the midst of protests against police brutality to deal not only with that pandemic, really an epidemic of racism, but the pandemic that continues to wreak havoc on so many marginalized communities, and that's COVID-19. We were in talks with the university, you know, to have the conversations about, are you listening to your students of color? This disease, um, this virus is negatively impacting us, disproportionately impacting us. And I have to say, I was I was very unhappy, even frustrated with the decision that was made. We were again, Lucas, to your point in the national news for that debacle and how we handled bringing students back, putting them at risk and then sending them back into communities to possibly, um, you know, super spread. And so I think that it's important to not only learn from history, as both Chris and Julia have mentioned, but also have that will to lead. And, and Julia's right. Um, the reforms that are necessary are just so uh, gaping and, and so large that it's going to end up being a revolution. And I do think that um, across academia, again, with the Nicole Hannah-Jones story and so many like that, students are just not prioritized like we should be. The university was created for us. Um, it wasn't created for all students. I think that's an important clarification. It was, it was created for white um, students of landowners, but I think it's important to understand that now claiming to um, serve students, but then not have students at the table when decisions are being made and instead just survey us or kind of quiet us down when something controversial happens is not helpful for that long-term progress that we've all mentioned. And so I think with groups like the Black Student Movement um, and like other groups on campus, student government and others, putting students in place that do have that will to listen to our peers and then to uh, work with administration is is one step, but I think it's important for those that continue to hold power, especially at the General Assembly and Board of Governors level. Um, it comes down to their willingness, honestly, and I think that education is important. Um, I talk often just in my organization, Young Americans Protest and, and other platforms that true change really takes education plus protesting plus policy change, which Julia touched on earlier. And so if folks aren't willing to engage with policy change and set in stone these freedoms um, and these protections for those of us that have been marginalized throughout history, but who are so important to our nation and our communities. Future, it's it's very difficult to understand how small reforms are going to get us there. And so I don't know if Chris has anything to add there, but again, just super proud of, of groups like UNC's Black Student Movement and, and similar groups across the state that don't get the recognition in our rural areas, in our mountainous regions where students, specifically black and brown, are raising their voices against injustice um, and are just not being heard because there's not that willingness to lead. And so, so that's what I'm focused on now is um, you can provide all of the facts, you can provide all of the data as we've seen with this COVID-19 pandemic, but it's up to those who call themselves leaders to, to really lead um, and to, to act. Yeah, and you know, and emphasizing what Julia and Greer both said about it's about the students, you know, and it's about the, the community that we built here in BSM and on campus amongst black students in Carolina. That's what 
drew me to Carolina. It wasn't the fact that, you know, it was the, the nation's, you know, number one public university or our, our state's flagship university. It was because when I visited campus, it was black students in the black student movement who made me feel comfortable. And, you know, the students here have been the priority of my work and my involvement in the black student movement for my four years. It's not to, to fix UNC, to make UNC even better, to get us any more national attention and awards. It's because I care about these students. I care about our experiences, the impact that we can have in our lives, even beyond Carolina. And I want to make sure our experience on campus while we're here is, is, is a meaningful experience. It's one that isn't you know, diluted by racism and oppression, but the students can survive and thrive. Like that's, that's the important, it's not just surviving, but also thriving. And we see so many attacks that come even from beyond our campus when you take in the North Carolina legislature and the UNC Board of Governors that are trying to attack both our survival and our even ability to thrive outside of this campus. So uh, we want to do whatever we can. And that's why I'm so proud of the work of BSM, especially over these last four or five years that I've been you know, a part of and cognizant of the work of this organization. Thank you so much for sharing that. You all have done like, BSM has done such amazing work and I'm so like grateful to be a part of it, even though I haven't been on campus to fully get that full experience. And I hope I will this semester when I go back, but it's just great to know that there is a safe space for me and people like me, black people on campus to go and use our voice and really relate to people and talk with one another on how we can make changes across the campus on UNC. And going back to Greer's point about last year during the summer of 2020, where people were protesting against police brutality and the murder of George Floyd, and it was broadcasted all over social media. And you all use your social media platforms to bring awareness to social issues and also speak up for your beliefs. Although there are many organizers like you who use social media to fight for what is right, there are those who engage in activism for personal gain. So how do you distinguish performative activism from genuine and real activism? And does it ever frustrate you as someone who was putting in the real work as a young activist? Yeah, that is always an issue. But I would say, you know, the, the biggest thing with me about performative activism, um, you know, I let folks do what they want to do. If you want to get in front of the news cameras and, you know, chase awards and chase, you know, feel good, you know, remarks from your friends and family, do that, you know, because there's so much work to be done. Whatever you're doing in your corner to bring attention, bring awareness, I'm fine with it. But my issue comes in the fact that, you know, folks get these large platforms, they get these lots of amounts of, of access and opportunities, and they don't share that with other young folks and activists who are actually on the ground in our community. So you can build all the platforms and stuff and do all the performative measures that you want to do. But what I would say is the difference between it being an activist and an organizer is that an activist is just trying to, you know, make some immediate change, make some immediate difference. And I think that's what we see with a lot of these performative activists. But organizers think intentionally and think critically about the resources they're able to galvanize and organize and how can they distribute those resources amongst their community? How can they be build more organizers and activists and how can they build long-term and strategic change in their communities that they're trying to serve? And I think that's what we need to see more of. There's more organized, there's more folks who are intentional and critical in their work and not just trying to, you know, chase a, a platform, chase some followers on Instagram and, you know, go viral on Twitter. But we need more intentional and strategic thinkers, more intentional and strategic organizers. So, yeah, that's the distinction for me. And that's that's my priority is trying to build more organizers because some folks really do be out here chasing platforms. Yeah, and I completely agree. I think that especially in the past year, um, I've really had to reevaluate 
my role and specifically what I want to call myself. I'm moving away, like Chris said, from words like activist and moving towards words that are more specific, like advocate, like organizer. And I think a lot of times, um, specifically activism is painted in a very positive light on social media, right? Where everybody wants to go to protest to take pictures with a quirky sign. Or, you know, you want to say Black Lives Matter by posting a Black screen on your Instagram, but what actions are you taking to make Black lives better? And so a lot of times, something that frustrated me over the past year especially was seeing people who, I think a lot of people utilize activism to kind of calm their own guilt and did not utilize activism to actually help others. So it's always about your intention. For me at UNC specifically, um, there's no reason why I should be a prominent advocate or organizer at, in Chapel Hill and at my university without speaking to community members. Students are transient. Students are here for on average, maybe four to six years um, in Chapel Hill, but community members are here forever. They've been here for generations. They will continue to live here for generations. And a lot of times what I see is a separation between students and community members that really should not be there. And so that's what I want um, Black Student Movement specifically to focus on in my coming years at Carolina and at UNC. And actually what I based my platform on was community building because there's no reason why we should have student activists that are making change at our university and in our communities without speaking to the very communities that will be affected by this change. So I think a lot of times, like Chris said, we need to be intentional on not only um, bringing attention to a topic, but also involving everybody affected in conversations about said topic. Because a lot of times, you know, it'll look great when you're on the news, it'll look great when you have a news article about you, but ultimately, just bringing awareness is not enough. Just talking about an issue is not enough. Just doing things to help a specific demographic like students that you fit into, but not recognizing the effects outside of your own privilege, because it is a privilege to be a college student in the first place, is something that I think separates organizing from activism, intentional organizing from, you know, performative activism. And I think especially in terms of protesting in the past year, um, you know, there was about a solid two weeks where everybody was reaching out to me like, hey, are you okay? I had people sending me money. Um, people were coming out to protest in thousands. And after those two weeks, it went silent. And the rest of us, the rest of the organizers were still in the streets still getting brutalized, getting pepper sprayed, getting beat by police for the same things because nothing had changed. And then ultimately we saw another big push in November, right? For voting registration and voter suppression. And after Biden was elected and went quiet again, when a lot of these issues still persist. So I think a lot of times we need to place our faith in our community and place our faith in each other instead of trying to go about actions alone. We should never be trying to do something alone when we have a community behind us that can help us. Community behind us that have probably done the same thing and elders behind us as well that can provide wisdom that we need to use. So I think a lot of times we need to kind of decenter ourselves and center instead the community around us, not only because they have knowledge that they can give, but also because the support is essential, especially Working against oppressive systems, fighting against oppressive systems is something that takes a large toll on people. 
And so trying to do the work alone is not something that's going to be successful for your mental health, for your physical health, or for policy change that you want to see. So I think decentering yourself and centering the community around you is the main distinction between performative activism, which centers yourself, and intentional organizing, which centers others and the community surrounding you. Sorry, if I could just follow that up by saying that I think Julie and Chris are exactly correct. And I think another word to throw in there is, is sacrifice. Um, how much are, will, are, are folks willing to sacrifice when it comes to being an organizer? So it may have been easy for folks to post a black box last year, but they weren't willing to put their name out there behind um, a certain word or a certain idea when it comes to policing, when it comes to um, racism. And I think the how, how people talk about their activism or organizing is important. And so to make that distinguishment between an activist and an organizer, I think is key. Are you in it for the long term and are you willing to sacrifice um, some of your yourself um, or, or your image for a community? And I think that when you look at places like Elizabeth City here in North Carolina, folks have already forgotten about Andrew Brown, even though there are organizers there still marching and still calling for change. I was able to last year in the midst of the protests against um, our officer, really, Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis talked to a Chapel Hill community member um, who's actually sent to prison for a year. I think she's now about 70, uh, just about um, how folks are organizing and protesting today, because I wanted to make sure, and as Julie mentioned earlier, I had to do some self-reflection and even some unlearning and make sure that I wasn't perpetuating harmful attitudes when it comes to lifting up communities. And so to be able to um, have that, again, willingness to learn from our elders to learn from those that have gone before us. Maybe we approach things in a new way. And of course, social media has, has a lot of um, power and a lot of good that it can be used for, but it's important to also constantly check in with yourself and with the community that you pledge to serve um, to understand if you are approaching things in the right manner and how you're speaking about these things, how you are willing to sacrifice in the name of that, that greater good, I think is important as well. So I just wanted to add that when you think about not only the difference between being an activist or an organizer, but that long-term change um, and that performative nature um, of what happened last summer and we still unfortunately see today. Yeah, I appreciate um, those views greatly. And I really, you know, I really appreciate, you know, the, this notion that there's work already being done in these communities, especially on a college campus, you leave the campus and there's work being done in those communities. And, and that's something that I had to grapple with. And I guess like, you know, unlearn and learn when I was starting organizing work this summer and organizing work in the past, and it largely came from, you know, thoughts of privilege being a white man, um, is that the work's already being done in these communities. You know, you don't have to go in there. You don't have to be a savior. You don't have to, to you know, rally everyone up behind you. The work's being done in, in these communities. It just takes you to, to finding them and putting yourself, you know, in, in you know, for like, like cahoots with them, working with them, you know, doing this work together, um, and, and doing the organizing work together. Um, and I think, you know, like some of the, some of the greatest advice we've gotten this summer was on organizing was, you know, when you're doing organizing work, it's a whole lot less you, you know, finding people and finding bodies and doing this, but it's connecting communities with the tools that they need to elevate their voices and get this work done. Um, and I think, you know, especially social media is kind of what's one of those tools for the youth. Um, and I think it's important like to have a conversation about what it means to be a performance you know, activists on, you know, social media versus actually doing organizing work through social media, through other tools in our community. Um, and so I just, I really appreciate, I really appreciate that notion that you all brought up. Um, and I also, I also want to ask, you know, 
because we talked about, you know, you all have mentioned um, movements and how movements die off. And we've seen that, you know, not only, you know, these past two years, but the, before, you know, you know, we, we, we try to build off of these, we try to build off momentum, but they die off. Um, and so I want to ask you all just like a follow-up question to that. Um, this, this has nothing to do with social media, but just like in general, um, you know, how have you worked to sustain the momentum of movements? Um, has it been through like, you know, bridging generational gaps and working with different demographics and different age groups to make these movements sustained? Um, and what can students do and youth do specifically to help sustain, you know, movements, even though we may have other things like classes um, or things that may come up and that, that interfere with doing this work as well? Yeah, and I think I can start with that. I want to begin by saying that I don't necessarily think any of these movements die off. Um, I think that they stop getting public attention. And I think it's important to make that distinction because specifically with Black Lives Matter, um, Black Lives Matter was founded after the murder of Trayvon Martin. And so this is something that is not new and didn't begin last summer and has been a sustained movement for almost a decade. Um, I think, yeah, almost a decade. And so Black Lives Matter was, I don't think it was ever a movement or has ever been a movement that has died off and come back and then died off again. It's just that public attention has kind of um, waned and weaned or whichever the word is. I'm not really sure, but public attention has decreased and increased um, throughout the years. And I think ultimately a lot that what I've realized is the attention that we gain at certain times is not because it's people just realizing that something is wrong. It's not that this is a new development. The attention we gain is when people's peace is disrupted, right? So for black people in America, we have never had peace, which is why when we say no justice, no peace, we mean that because Black people, our community in this country has never had peace. Now, there are moments in time when other communities, non-Black communities, specifically the white majority in this country, are able to find peace because they're able to forget the horrors that are happening outside of their doors, the horrors that are happening in their streets. And so in those moments, they go quiet, right? But as soon as their peace is disrupted, through demonstrations, through public disturbances, even through nonviolent forms of protest like property damage, that is when we see attention grow. And so oftentimes the way that I have seen that these movements um, must be sustained is by decentering whiteness. So what we're not looking for is, okay, how can we get more white people to care about this issue? Because our focus is not on getting white people to care, getting white media attention, or um, necessarily getting as many people as we can at a protest, even though numbers are good. What we want to see is making sure we are continuing to empower communities to do work that won't get the attention, right? To do work that they can do themselves, not by doing work for them, but by empowering them enough and by creating generational knowledge and generational advocacy that can be sustained. And so I think something I've struggled with a lot in the past year is kind of watching the attention to this movement increase and decrease, right? Because that can bring a lot of anger when nothing has changed, but for some reason people have stopped paying attention. But I've realized that, you know, the people that can go back to their normal, regular lives after watching everything that happened in the past year are not the people we need in this movement. 
But the people that are left, the people that are here, the people that are still organizing, still standing up, and the community members that are doing this work without gaining the media attention are the ones that need the most support. And so that's where I've been placing my efforts the most, is making sure that those who are still organizing, those who are still present, and those who are still fighting have the most support and have the most um, passion and feel the most empowered to continue to do that work. Because oftentimes we center ourselves around wanting to get the most media attention, wanting to get you know, those that are not affected by this issue to care about this issue. But honestly, if I have to beg you to care about my life in this country, then maybe that's not where I should be putting my efforts because instead I should be placing my efforts in those that have continued to sustain these movements even behind the scenes. So I think that oftentimes that's something that I myself have had to unlearn in deciding who I wanna focus on in my advocacy work and my organizing. Do I focus on the community that has been doing this work for centuries, for decades even? Or do I focus my organizing on getting those that don't necessarily know about this or don't care about this into the movement? I think that we would be better off placing our emphasis and placing our support and our, our love even onto those that are, are still left and those that are still doing the work despite the decreased attention from the white majority in this country. Yeah, I think Julia makes a few great points to just touch on. And, and first, just launching off of the last one, that is that white supremacy and racism runs rampant in media. I mean, we've seen that even with um, this Nicole Hannah-Jones issue at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, there's a certain way that a lot of the media outlets like to frame activism or like to frame protesting. And if um, if things don't fit into that narrative, they kind of don't talk about it anymore. We see that with gun violence. Um, we see that with school shootings. We see that with racial um, and socioeconomic protests. Um, and I think one of the points that Julie made that is just so important is that the absence of justice is inherently not peaceful. And so when you don't have justice, there's no way that communities, specifically marginalized communities, can ever feel at peace. And so I think one of the ways to continue these movements, even again, reshaping the way that we think about movements as, as being national media attention grabbers, is by making, making it more personal, um, making politics personal. The root word of politics, P-O-L, just means of a citizenry or of a people. And so to make sure that folks understand, to Julia's point, that many of these issues do impact you in one way or another. And people don't care, again, until they're made to feel uncomfortable. And so one of the stories that really sticks out in my mind is after the shooting, again, there are just so many, but one of the mass shootings in Ohio, um, there was a congressman, A-plus rating from the NRA, a, a big gun rights advocate, um, came out in support of gun control legislation. And folks continued to question him, you know, why, why? Um, and it turned out that he had a granddaughter that wasn't killed, but worked in the club that was was shot up. And so to understand that it took that for someone to realize the importance of, you know, in this case, gun violence prevention is, is so sad. And so that's why I think what Julia just mentioned is so poignant. I like to break up potential supporters into three groups. The people that are on your side, the folks that are on the fence and can be swayed over to understanding your point of view are willing to be educated. And then the folks that are always going to be against you. And so I think that by focusing just on those that are never going to listen, that don't have that willingness to lead, I think that's where you get a lot 
of this back to the previous question, performative activism, folks that know that they're not having to sacrifice much, that they can look good or get the attention. And they're speaking to this group of people that they know is never going to get on board with what they're saying, but maybe just for that time period, will engage with them. And so that's why I think we really need to reshape what it looks like to, to lead a movement in the first place. Because I think that, again, for something like the Black Lives Matter movement, it's continuing right now, even though the media is not live from a protest in a major city every night like they were last summer. And so I think that access to just rounding it out is important. Giving young people in particular the tools to get involved is why groups and grassroots organizing is, is so important. Um, folks that are willing to have that foresight to say, we don't want this problem to exist in, the, in this community in the future. So we're going to instill in young people the tools and the access to have the conversations that matter and are important, to work together and build that support from one another instead of just one sole individual. I think that's really where that true change comes into play is by giving folks access and tools to make that policy change and to feel that support so that when the next instance happens, um, they can be dispatched to go out and tackle it in the hopes of preventing one in the future. And so I think when we talk about are we in a moment versus a movement, what does a movement look like? It's all about access and it's all about being willing to, to sacrifice um, and give power to young people and to marginalized people. And so I think that you know, that pre prevents itself, um, presents itself, excuse me, in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, in the movement against gun violence. And it's important to understand when we talk about young people in particular, that giving folks the tools uh, to create that lasting change is important. And it may not look good because of the way we framed a movement nationally, but it's what's going to create the most um, change. And it's going to, to create the opportunity to thrive that Chris mentioned at the top. Yeah, and you know, completely echoing everything that Julie and Greer said, and, you know, meeting people where they're at, that is always my priority. If I want to sustain something, I have to meet folks where they're at. I can't, you know, just focus on folks who are far away and they're never going to be reached. They just don't care about my issue. Or even folks that you know are going to be completely solid, you know, good. You have a good solid folk in your team. But that middle group that Greer mentioned who, you know, could potentially be swayed or, you know, they are definitely in support, but for whatever reason, they don't have the resources to be involved or they haven't been given the right opportunity to be involved. That's how you sustain folks, sustain things by engaging those folks who just need that support, need that opportunity. Um, you know, right now in my professional work outside of my, my organizing, outside of my involvement, uh, my, my full-time job is to work on vaccine outreach in East North Carolina. So I manage vaccine operations and, you know, set up vaccination events. And at this point in the pandemic, it's hard reaching folks, you know, because at this point, anybody who wanted the vaccine, they already got it. And right now we're reaching folks who either cannot get it because of some other needs or they're just absolutely against it. And, you know, and, and that's that. But those folks who are having other needs as barriers to getting the vaccine, those are the folks I work every day trying to meet. You know, if they need time off work, how can we make sure that their employer is giving them paid time off? Or if they're worried about, you know, food and or they're worried about the eviction crisis, how can I make sure that I'm also connecting them with some other resources to meet their needs so that those aren't barriers to getting them to, to be the, the to get vaccinated? So, you know, as organizers, we have to be again intentional and critical and think critically about what are the needs, what are the barriers of folks getting involved in the movement. And if you want to sustain your movement, if you want to sustain your organization, you have to work to eliminate some of those barriers to your involvement. Thank you for that. I appreciate you, Chris, drawing in everything Greer and Julia said and giving us an example of vaccinations currently and how we can see that. Um, and I want to apologize too for my choice of words when I framed that question. Um, and I appreciate you, you know, pushing back and, and letting, you know, and saying that Julia, that movements don't die off the attention that the media gives to them do. So thank you very much. 
for pointing that out. Yes, I agree with Lucas and um, our struggles as black people going back to the social media is just not it's not just a trend or an aesthetic. It's real problems and real issues that we have to address and not something you just post for a follow or like or getting validation. And with social media, um, you know how it a lot of our things that happen are broadcasted over social media. And when you see it a lot, does it ever, when you see those things, does it ever take a toll on your mental health or doing this um, work as an organizer, does it ever take a toll on your mental health? Do you ever have to feel like you have to take a break or step back and breathe? Yeah, I, I can start with this. Um, because honestly, mental health is something I did not really speak about until very recently, because especially as, once again, as a black woman, because this work is very intersectional, I think the toll is um, a lot different on us as a community than it is for like black men, for example. For black women, we're always taught that we have to be strong, that we should sacrifice for others and we should prioritize others above ourselves. And for a lot of, a, a lot of time, I fell into that trope where I wanted to be strong, I didn't wanna ask for help and I was placing others and placing, helping others above making sure that I was okay. I think that activism and advocacy and organizing does take a toll. It does, like this, this is not all fun and games. What we post on social media is not just the reality of it, but everything that I have done in the past, even the past five years, have been incredibly traumatic. Even if I've you know, been able to achieve some wonderful things, I have in those achievements also gained a lot of trauma that I need to prioritize and deal with myself before I'm able to help others um, and continue my work. One thing that I've always had trouble with is taking breaks. And so actually last week, Black Student Movement took a mental health hiatus for a week. And I was honestly struggling to take a break um, because I think that what we don't recognize a lot is the guilt that comes with self-care. Being able to self-care is in itself a luxury, a luxury that a lot of people cannot afford. And so for me, I hold incredible guilt when I take a moment to myself because it feels like, well, okay, how can I do a face mask when people are still dying? Or how can I you know, go to the pool when um, all this systemic inequality is still present? And so I know that for me, mental health has always been something that I've struggled with, um, but something that I've also put off. And oftentimes I've ignored because I want to be that voice for my community and that strong, independent Black woman that people paint me out to be. But ultimately, people's image of you that they have in their head is not the image that you have to live up to. I do not have to be strong all the time. I don't need to have a response for everything. I can take some time to myself. And ultimately people will always expect me to be you know, the first to take action, the first to speak out, the first to have something to say. And so it's kind of jarring when you know, I need to take some time for myself and I need to take a step back before I respond or take a moment to breathe. And so I think that mental health and activism go hand in hand. Because what I always say is that, you know, the, the largest resistance that you can do to a system that is oppressive, like the one we live under, is by prioritizing yourself. 
especially as Black women. And so that's something that I've been doing recently. Um, I started therapy, which I'm excited about. It took me a while to get here, but <laughs> so I'm actively taking steps because I recognize to take care of my community, I need to take care of myself. And a lot of times that's something that our elders and that our ancestors were not able to do. They didn't have time to take care of ourselves because they were taking care of everyone else and just trying to survive. But now what we don't need to do is be feeling guilty about taking time or feeling guilty about taking a breath or taking a pause before we keep the momentum going. Because ultimately this is a lifelong fight. This is not something that's gonna be solved in five years or even 10 or 20. This is advocacy and organizing is something that is a lifelong commitment. And so to be able to have that stamina to keep up with all of the burdens, all of the pain, and all of the trauma that comes with this work, you need to also be able to take time for yourself. And I think that that's been difficult for me in the past, but it's something I'm trying to be better at, especially as, you know, things just keep ramping up. But it's like, especially at UNC and being a part of Black Student Movement, it's like we run from one fire to the next. As soon as we extinguish one problem or as soon as we're able to kind of alleviate one burden, a new burden comes up. And it's something that we see every day with the new controversies our school is under each second. And so taking time to breathe does not mean that you're giving up or that you're surrendering to a system, but it instead, I think, is an act of revolutionary love for yourself and resistance to a system that tells you you have to sacrifice everything, you have to give up everything when you really don't. And you should be able to take care of yourself and let your community take care of you. Because if you ask for help, then help will be given. And no one takes better care of Black people than our own community. I know that for a fact. And so leaning into the people that you love and being able to prioritize yourself is something that I think is super important. And I wish more organizers and advocates would do as well. Yes, I agree. As a Black woman, we are stereotyped as being strong and we aren't allowed to be fragile or soft or feminine. But I think, like you said, it's okay for us to not be strong all the time and take therapy and talk to people. And especially in the Black community where mental health isn't taken as seriously as it should. You know, people grow up, we're saying like, oh, you didn't have nothing to be sad about. You're okay. Like you have all this stuff. But I've learned from someone telling me a long time ago that when it comes to mental health and anxiety and all of these things, materialistic things do not matter. And it's more than that. So I think it's okay. And it's great for people to go to therapy and put their self-care, prioritize their self-care and prioritize their mental health and take care of themselves. So thank you for that. Yeah, for me, it was, you know, learning that um, if I don't choose a time to slow down, my body will choose a time for me. And so I had to be intentional about prioritizing, um, not only just my mental health, but my physical health. Because if you let your mental health get out of control to a point that you can't manage, it will impact your physical health. You will be fatigued. You will feel sick. Your body will literally feel sick. And, you know, things got such a, a, a terrible point last year, just with the Save the World, the, the, the movement, you know, protesting, the pandemic school, you know, this, the, the start of last school year was just so challenging for me. Um, very few people know this, like I can count on probably one or two hands. Julia is one of the few people in the world that know this. I actually withdrew from UNC during the fall semester, the fall semester of my senior year, because of just how challenging life had got. And for a little bit, I was, I was embarrassed. I was disappointed in myself, but after probably uh, two or three days, I was like, you know what? I'm actually quite proud of myself. I recognize it. This is what I need to do in this moment to take care of myself. This is what I need to do 
to get myself together, to be able to serve and be my best in other capacities, I need to slow down in this capacity of being a student for just a second because I couldn't allow school to be a stressor for me when I'm worried about whether or not I'm going to survive this pandemic or whether or not I'm going to get killed by police interacting in my community. There's so many other concerns that I had that I needed to prioritize my physical, my mental, my emotional health. And that was, you know, a choice I made. And I'm so glad I made that choice. I still, you know, graduated successfully, had a, a great spring semester, but had I not made that choice and been intentional about what I thought was best for my health in the fall, I don't even think I would have made it that far. So I'm very grateful that it took a long time, you know, for me to get to that point where I can make tough decisions of prioritizing Chris at times, but it's so important that if Chris wants to, you know, get out and volunteer in the community, if I want to be able to make a difference, you know, on campus and be involved in other aspects, I have to make sure I'm taking care of myself and my body too. So slow down before your body chooses you to do, you know, chooses the time for you to do it because you won't like it because it'll happen at the most inopportune time otherwise. So, you know, being strategic and thinking about my own health, which is so important. Yeah, I think that's an important point. And just jumping back quickly to, to something that Julia mentioned as well. Um, you know, this idea that Black folks are not a monolith either, that we have a shared story or a common ancestry, but that the struggle looks different even for Black men and, and Black women. So to understand that generally mental health has been so stigmatized for folks, specifically for the Black community, um, I as well have, have recently started therapy and was looking at some statistics the other day, and especially since last summer, all of the black therapists are almost booked up because there's so much to go to therapy for in America as a black person. And so to understand that that is so um, necessary, that it's critical if you want to lead from a place of, um, you know, truth, from a place of integrity to make sure that you are, you are in a position to do so. Um, I mean, my past who is a Black woman mentioned last summer with everything going on that we need to get away from this idea of resting from our work and work from a place of rest. And that was so revolutionary for me because if I'm tired and trying to lead others or draw awareness or attention to an issue in the hopes of creating some lasting change, but I'm not 100%, what does that say? You know, do those that are looking to us, to communities for support, do they realize that and notice that? Um, and so it's important that we do take that time for ourselves to understand that it is taxing and traumatizing. I um, mean, to Julia's point, I just can't imagine what our uh, forefathers and mothers and those of the civil rights movement and even long before were going through, um, where mental health was even more stigmatized in communities of color, to be able to still have that faith and hold on to hope in the midst of all that was going on and to see those patterns reflected today. I just think it's crucial that we do take advantage of the resources that are out there while also pushing for more resources and resources that reflect the needs of um, America's most marginalized. And so working from a place of rest is something that's really stuck with me and something that I encourage young folks listening in to do as we continue to um, lead and continue to try and reverse some of the harmful effects that um, have been placed on our generation. I also wanted to, thanks y'all for that. I wanted to just name the nuance that lives in doing this work because earlier, Greer, you were talking about how organizers have a level of sacrifice to their work. And at the same time, you all are not, should not be sacrificing so much that you're sacrificing your health and your well being. And that this nuance 
it gets lost sometimes and that things are not a binary dichotomy um, and that you have to see the shades in between when you're when you're doing such important work and such critical work for all of society. So I just wanted to name that because it's it's easy to forget and think that you just have to go all the way uh, one way or another when it's when that's really not it. I just want to um, thank you all for being so vulnerable with that question. And, you know, especially Julia and Greer, you know, and, and, and Chris, you know, talking about going to therapy, talking about withdrawing what you've done for yourselves, um, because I think that's something that youth need to hear when they're starting this work, that it's okay, A, to do that for yourself, but B, to be vulnerable um, and to be willing to share. Um, because I just feel that sometimes we just get built too too much. And, you know, I mean, especially, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you all three are very accomplished. Um, and so it's a little intimidating to talk to all three of you because you all three are so very accomplished. So I appreciate you being vulnerable um, and, you know, humanizing yourself for those of us who may not know you on such a personal level and knowing that this work, you're still a person. You're still a person who's going through you know, these changes in your lives and you're dealing with them in your own ways and you're taking care of yourself, which is very much important. Um, and I also just, you know, well, I just want to say, you know, just like from a, a more systemic level, this entire notion that, uh, you know, like you mentioned, Julia, that we can't take rest for ourselves is, is bred into our capitalistic system to where the body is a unit of work. Um, and the, we are not allowed, you know, that it, it's, it's not, you are not an individual, you are a unit of production um, to produce something. And so, you know, humanizing ourselves and realizing that we're allowed to take those breaks um, is kind of a way to, to fight back against that system as well um, and to continue that. Um, and so we've been through the work that you have done, the work that you, you know, are currently doing. So we kind of want to talk about what's next, what's after student and youth activism. Um, you know, Chris, you just graduated. Greer, you'll graduate in a year or two, as will you, Julia. Um, so beginning with you, Chris, as having just graduated, and you mentioned the work that you're currently doing, um, how have you taken your organizing experience and your advocacy work that you've done? Um, how are you taking it into your professional career now? And where do you see it taking you in the future as you continue your work? Yeah, um, that's a, the, a really great question. So, you know, a lot of my focus in my, my organizing work has been around, uh, again, sustainability. I, I don't want anything that I start or anything I'm involved in to, to die after I leave. So, you know, during my four years involved with Black Student Movement at UNC, I focused a lot on making sure that we had access to resources and funding that, like, you know, that we were bringing younger students into our organization, like, um, one of my most proudest accomplishments, like I can't take credit at all for anything that Julia has done on campus at UNC, but when Julia was a first year student at UNC, we had a, a position open in our political action committee and we typically reserve those spots for sophomores, juniors, seniors, but I already knew that Julia was just, you know, an awesome organizer, awesome organizer, leader, like she had that passion, she had that, that drive that we needed and I was like, we need to put Julia in this position. Julia came in as our political action co-chair her first year on campus at Carolina and just made an impact immediately. So, you know, as a leader, making sure that I'm bringing other folks into the fold so that when it's time for me to step away, that the work continues, that the movement doesn't die. And, you know, that's an example of movements not dying because of that younger and fresher and newer energy coming into it. So, you know, in my professional work, I'm currently, again, managing vaccine um, outreach in Eastern North Carolina, making sure that when I'm out organizing events and stuff around the vaccine, I'm also working to build long-term organizing strategies in, in the communities I'm working in. 
connecting folks with other resources around voter engagement, um, the eviction crisis, the rent and utility assistance, or if folks need food, that they have access to food, that, you know, I'm building really sustainable equity measures in those communities, even beyond just the vaccine. Um, additionally, I'm, you know, currently running for local office too, so I'm, I've made that type of commitment to my local community that, you know, the, the work doesn't just stop at organizing, but also, is, as Julia and Greer have emphasized, includes those policy changes. So I'm, I'm getting involved in that level too, because I recognize the need of long-term, sustainable, and, and strategic impact in my community. So that's what I'm working on right now. I'm really excited, and I'm really grateful for the experiences that my organizing in Kinston has provided me so far, as well as my organizing experiences on campus at Chapel Hill have provided. And just, I can't wait to see what happens next. And for Greer and Julia, I know that you all aren't starting, you know, jobs yet. Um, you all are going back to campus in a couple of weeks um, where you will continue doing, you know, hopefully camp, hopefully we're going back to campus in a couple of weeks, um, if, as long as Delta doesn't have anything to do with it. Um, but, you know, what are you planning to do? you know, in your last couple of years of college, prepare yourselves for what's next. And what do you see as what's next for yourselves? Uh, so please feel free to, to share with us about that. Yeah, and I just wanna say that, you know, Chris is right that originally as a first year, I applied for first year class counsel. Did not get that one, but then I was actually given a political action committee co-chair. And I didn't know at the time that I was the, the youngest to do that. Um, so, but it's an honor. Uh, that I, my path has included great people and great mentors like Chris, and I would not have gotten to this point without people like you. So thank you again. Um, and I think for me, the main thing that I'm preparing for now is, like you said, Lucas, we're going back to campus um, in a couple weeks, in two weeks, I think now. And of course, a lot of the same worries we had last year, we're having again with this Delta variant and the lack of care from our university for our students, considering they have no vaccine mandate, no mask mandate, and they have no off-ramp planning for what were to happen if there were to be an outbreak or clusters. And so we're in a similar position again. And so of course, in my next two years at Carolina, I will continue the advocacy work and the organizing work that I've already done um, BSM presented a list of 13 demands to our chancellor that we uh, fully intend to have completed, no ifs, ands, or buts. And so that's something that I will be focusing on. And then I'm also going to be fo focusing on exploring what my passions really are. And so I think that it's okay to not have everything figured out now. My original plan was to go to law school and to focus on human rights law. But I think the past couple months, I've really had to think you know, do I like advocating and do I like defending people because it's something I want to do for the rest of my life? Or is it because it's all I know? It's all I've ever had to do because I've never been in a position where somebody's advocating for me. So I have to advocate for myself. And so I think what I'm really in now is kind of a turning point for my life and deciding what I want to do and deciding what career path I want to take. I know that I love working with young people and I love educating people about topics. So currently I'm working at a summer program called Youth Empowered Action that actually teaches kids ages 10 to 17 about activism and organizing. And it's some of the most rewarding things I've ever done because I love working with kids. And I think that there's power in being able to explain complicated topics like capitalism versus communism to a 12 year old. I think that that's so, I love doing that. And so in the next two years, I think I'm really gonna be exploring 
kind of what I want my career path to be. Do I want to follow my passions, which include, you know, education, include working with youth, include organizing, or do I want to take the experience that I have with organizing and advocacy and put that into practice um, more, more literally, I guess, through law school and through human rights advocacy. I'm also, like I stated before, I'm Brazilian. So a lot of my work has to be international and has to be global and anti-racism work is global and international. And so I'm deciding once again, whatever I do, whatever career path I choose, I also want it to be able to translate to help my family at home and to help my country at home, which deals with very similar issues of racism, mass incarceration and systemic injustice. And so I don't have everything figured out right now about what exactly my plan is in the future, but I'll be taking the next two years to kind of just really dive into my passions and figure that out. And I think it's okay that I don't have everything ready and I'm excited for the process of discovery that I have ahead of me. Yeah, I think Julia took the words right out of my mouth there at the end. First of all, um, yes, just to echo what she was saying earlier, I've, I've really enjoyed my time at UNC because of the Black community there and because of the students, more importantly. And so to Chris as well, who I count as a mentor, um, and then following in Julia's footsteps as a co-chair of the Political Action Committee, it's given me great experience um, and just shows how vital to sustainability organizations like the Black Student Movement um is and are on campuses and so um, yes i have thought about law school lucas um but definitely want to take these next two years to to make sure and to figure out um again what my passions are and how i could utilize a degree like that in the future to continue advocating and organizing you mentioned the internship i did this summer which was very eye-opening at the u.s black chambers which just looks at racial disparities in business um, looked at the ways and I was able to research the ways that coronavirus has impacted um, black businesses and black owned businesses in particular and then just the way again that the American government categorizes minority and are they really in it to uplift and support black folks um, and black entrepreneurs we know that so many inventions and creations were invented and created by black folks in this country and so that education piece is important something that I hope to continue to do. And so at my internship up in DC was able to just study how policy is made and crafted and the importance in the current system that we do find ourselves in capitalism money plays um, in the way ways that it unfortunately disadvantages certain groups of people. And so um, yes, definitely looking forward to a new normal here this fall, um, hoping that the community of Chapel Hill, which includes UNC, is going to be kept safe from this Delta variant, but taking these next few years to uh, close out my majors and to really understand um, the ways that I can take this education um, and really life experiences, right? Those one-on-one -on -one connections that I've been able to form with people like Chris and Julie and professors, relationships um, are, are truly important when it comes to working. And so to, to think of um, an environment or a company or an organization where I would like to work that, that truly values me um, and my abilities and, and what I have learned is something that I'm going to be focusing on these, these next two years and then even after college to make sure that um, I continue to stay intentional um, and I continue to look for opportunities that are not only going to um, give me credibility, but better me as a person and allow me to take those, those periods of rest and those times to um, reflect and, and improve. So I'm looking forward to the future. I'm excited for um, Chris and Julia's future, they mentioned some of the things that they're excited about. And so, um, again, just 
yeah, thanks for hosting the space to have this conversation. I think it's important. Um, and again, I encourage everyone out there listening that is a young person, especially um, to be bold um, and to find that courage within you, because I really believe that you have it to make a change and make some long lasting change in, in your community. Thank you all. Um, and before I pass over to Chantel to finish it out, I just wanted to reiterate what you and Julia both said. Um, it's okay for our youth listening, you know, not to have it completely figured out right now. There is immense pressure within the systems that we exist and live in to have your life planned out. Um, and it's okay. Um, you know, Chris, I'm sure you didn't even have your life until you planned out. Um, and it's amazing that you just continue to roll with it. And you keep, you know, whatever, you know, the work that you're doing first off with vaccinations is incredible. And I commend you, especially East North Carolina. There's a lot of stubborn counties in East North Carolina um, who are resisting vaccinations greatly. So I commend you for the work that you are doing. Um, but yes, you know, we don't have to have it figured out. Um, you know, you all follow your passions, do the work that, you know, makes you feel fulfilled and that you would find yourself enjoying. Um, and you'll make great strides doing that. I'll pass it over to you, Chantel. Thank you, Lucas. And thank you all so much for being here with us today and such a cultivating conversation. We're so grateful that you all join us today as we both have learned so much and truly have been inspired. So we all still have lots of work to do, but seeing the work you all are doing gives people hope for the future. The youth are the future leaders and it is us who will continue to create space and opportunities for those who have been overlooked, looked down upon and overshadowed. Young organizers like ourselves are key to preserving the fight, the awareness, and the advocacy of those that came before us and inspiring those who will come after us. With that said, thank you all for the great work you have done and the great work you will continue to do. Keep up the fight and thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks. Thank you for listening and for helping us create a North Carolina that's built by us. Thanks for listening to this podcast of, by, and for the people. And now listen to Prison Sun by Charlotte Culture Party. Charlotte Culture Party is a band out of Charlotte, North Carolina, made up of Clint Lemons and Dylan Moss. Prison Sun is off of their 2019 album, Cicada. Next week, they will be releasing a new single. So look out for them on Instagram and Apple Music or Spotify at Charlotte Culture Party. Hope you enjoy. I really need this night and talking over. How does it feel to be a four-leaf clover? A feeding tube inside a concrete boulder. To freedom come. Holding smoke in my lungs
truth it's keeping me down Feather spice in my tongue Holding smoke in my lung Breathing deeper keeps me close to the sound with us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at democracync, or you can visit our website at democracync.org.